Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. So to recap from last week, to pick up where we left off, one of the things that is completely impossible to control is the parable of the seeds, right? Remember the parable of the farmer going around spreading seed, hoping, you know, and praying that God will give yield and produce to their crop in the same way it is with the gospel, right? We spread the seeds of the gospel, uh, but we cannot control the soil. The only thing you can control is the seed, And so this morning we are finishing on um, what that seed should look like. Obviously, anytime you're having gospel conversations with somebody, you cannot cover all of these things unless you're sitting down and speaking for hours. But rather, this content is hopefully what you are covering on a multitude of conversations over a multitude of time, right? And as God leads and gives opportunities, you're going to be able to cover one aspect of the gospel, much like when I went ring shopping for my wife years ago, I knew nothing about diamonds, right? You could have thrown any of them in front of me and I would have known anything about them. And one of the most helpful things that a jeweler did for me early on was pick up the diamond, right, and shine it in the light. And I thought, oh, that's beautiful. And then, of course, she puts it on a black felt backdrop and realizes, oh, it's hideous, right? But there are so many aspects to a diamond. You need good contrast. You need to hold it up to the light and see it reflect and refract the light. And so too it is with the gospel. There are so many beautiful parts to the gospel. We have to understand who God is. We have to understand who we are in light of the gospel. We have to see our sin, the black felt backdrop that allows us to appropriately appreciate the gospel and its beauty and for what it really is, right? We have to see Christ for who he is and what he did. And then lastly, we must respond in some way, some form. And all of us have responded whether we realize that or not. We won't have a lot of time for that in the back end, but no response is a response. It's something that you need to be sharing with folks. If you are not responding or if you feel like you are not ready to respond, that is a response. <laughs> if you bend a knee and ask a gal to marry you and she says, let me think about it and keeps putting you off week after week after week, that's a response, brothers, <laughs> right? You need to maybe turn the page there. She's telling you something there by not telling you anything. And so we need to, as well, be able to know lovingly with people, you have responded, right? Um, So last week we looked at who is God and who is man. It's always dangerous, but I'm going to give an opportunity for input. What do you guys remember about who is God? What are some things that stood out to you? What do you remember? God's in control of sovereignty. Absolutely. What else? Huh? Father, love that part about God. So Father. Omnipresent. Mm-hmm. Creator. Creator. Huge. Yeah. All powerful, omnipotent, all knowing, omniscient. He's loving, he's good, he's perfect, he's holy. Right? He's a just judge, but he's also merciful and forgiving. And of course, sacrificial, right? All these things leading up to the gospel, right? Understanding these characteristics about who God is. And of course, think about this. Think about all the characteristics we would not know about God if it were not for the gospel, right? If Christ had not died at the cross, which God did not have to do, would we understand the grace of God? Would we understand the mercy of God? If God not, had not allowed sin to enter the world, 
think about all the aspects of God, which would totally be true, but we would not know them. There's a barn buster there for you. Why did God allow sin to enter the world? For his glory, so we may know him better, more fully, and that he may be more fully glorified. So we must know about God. Of course, A.W. Tozer, remember the quote from last week, right? What comes to our minds when we think about God just very likely might be the most important thing about us. So we need to be having conversations with people. Who is God to you? Now, who is God really, right? And we open up the word of God and talk about that with them. What do we learn about who is man? What do you guys remember? Who is man? Mm. You're always ahead of me, brother. I love that. Yep, that's where we're headed. He is a sinner. What else? His creation. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Made in the image of God. We're creation made in the image of God, which means God has authority over us, and we are to be subject to him. Those are a couple of the simple tenets that I think we have to hold to about who man is in order to lead appropriately into the gospel, right? Um, and then nailed on the head, man is sinful. That's where we're headed this morning. So this morning we're going to talk about what is sin, what is the gospel, or what is God's response to sin, we might say, and then what is our appropriate response. That simple progression, who is God, who is man, what is sin, what is the gospel, who is Christ, right? and our appropriate response to Christ in the gospel would be a good seed of the gospel. We cannot control the soil, but we can control the seed. So this morning we hope to finish that good gospel seed, talking about what is sin, the gospel, and our response. Before we dive in, join with me in prayer. Let's just pray that God would, would bless this time in his word. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege to open your word once again. Um, God, we pray that as we consider our sin, the sin of the world, the sin of all, that, that God, there would be humility here, uh, that Lord, you would break us over our own sin, um, but God, also encourage us anew to be so grateful for Christ. That, God, this would break our hearts over our own need of Christ and the cross, that it was for our sin that he needed to go there. If it was me alone and my sin alone, Christ still needed to go to that cross. But, Lord, we are so thankful that the work you did at the cross was sufficient for all. That if every single person on the face of the planet were to place faith and trust in you, that the death you died and the life you resurrected was powerful enough to pay for it all because you were worthy. And Lord, we are so grateful for that. God, we pray that these truths would grip us. I confess it is so easy for me to, to become comfortable, okay with even my sin, knowing that God, you have paid that debt. I pray that this morning we would be reminded of the, the true absolute cost of our sin. That Christ, we would be reminded of the absolute beauty of what we are invited into in that right relationship with you, Lord. And that God, that it would stir our hearts for the broken and the lost around us. That we would see the peril that lies before them 
And that, God, we would be like you, Lord Jesus, in warning others of what lies ahead. Uh, Father, we pray that you would bless this time in your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I have a basic definition of what is sin this morning that we're going to try to work off of. Try to put it up here for you guys. I came up with this myself, so if there's any flaws in it, you can find them with me. Um, this is not comprehensive by any means, but will at least guide us through our discussion of what hopefully are some good biblical ways of weaving our way through an understanding of what is sin and, of course, what it leads to. Sin is deception that leads to rebellion. It is a rebellion that leads to greater and greater corruption, a corruption that causes a separation from a right relationship with God and a separation from a right relationship with God that culminates, terminates in eternal condemnation, of course, unless God intervenes. So this morning, we'll work our way through those five things, deception, those are your five little fill-in-the-blanks for those of you who like to fill in the blank. Deception, rebellion, corruption, separation, and condemnation. Condemnation, our understanding of what is sin. Uh, to start with deception, we need go no further than, of course, Genesis chapter 3. That is the beginning and the first time we see the deception of sin. Right? Satan, the most crafty of all the creation, as God put in his word in Genesis chapter 3, came to Eve. And what is the first thing that Satan did? Genuinely asking, what is the first thing that Satan did? Told them they wouldn't die. Mm -hmm. How did he question the authority of God? Did God really say? He questioned the word of God. Did God really say? Did God really say? You shall not now. I love this part. You shall not eat of any tree. There is the twist. First twist. Any tree in the garden? And of course, he knew exactly what God said. And again, so did Adam and Eve. Eve literally repeats it word for word here in a moment, right? Did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And he twists right there. The deception begins by questioning the word of God. Think about that in your own life. Deception with sin always begins with a twisting of the word of God. One of the greatest tricks of sin is actually to take something that is true and just twist it ever so slightly to serve its own purposes, whether it be the flesh or perhaps even a greater temptation than our own flesh. I don't know if there really is a greater one. Get into that debate at another time. But that is the beginning of deception, the promising of something better than obedience to God or enjoyment of God, and then it delivers something else. It reminds me of a quote from Kay Author. I might have used this quote already. I cannot remember. Sin will take you farther than you ever expected to go, and it will keep you longer than you ever intended to stay, and it will cost you more than you ever expected to pay. There's a key word in there that I want to focus on, expected expected to pay. See, therein lies the deception. We never see what sin is actually going to cost us. We never 
see on the front end what it will produce inside of us. And we definitely, we definitely are not thinking about where it will take us in the end when it comes to sin. Have you ever considered this? If I actually knew what sin would cost me, would I do it? If I was actually thinking about in the moment of temptation where sin will lead me, would I go? Of course, the answer is absolutely not. Have you ever thought about why God said he cannot be tempted by sin? That he himself cannot be tempted by sin? Well, Christ knew. He knows better. He knows its end. He knows sin for what it really is because he cannot be deceived by sin as we have been deceived by sin. You see, what makes sin attractive for many of us is its hidden consequences. Right? You think about children and all the things that they love to do and to play. My daughter loves to try to jam stuff into a light socket, right? But there will come a point in time where she will realize and no longer find that fun because she realizes the danger of it, right? And eventually the allure of it wears off. Smoking for many has no longer become attractive because of education and people realize the consequences that come with such a practice. Now, not for all, of course, right? Deception, right? We're more attracted to maybe the short-term benefits than the long-term potential consequences. But in general, that practice in our country and in the world for the most part has greatly subsided due to the understanding of the consequences on the front end. When, you remember those commercials, uh, this is your brain on drugs and the, the frying egg and the frying pan, right? That is the idea there is that is folks, probably a lot of parents, right? Trying to use education and helping kids understand the consequences of their actions. Well, therein lies the great problem with sin is we do not see its end. There's deception on the front end when it comes to sin. It will take you farther than you expect it to go. It will keep you longer than you intended to stay. And it will cost you so much more than you ever expected to pay. We all think we're the exception. And that sin will not cost us what God promises in his word, it will. Which in its end is death. There are hidden consequences to sin. And of course, that's exactly what Satan questions. He immediately says, you will surely not die or you will not surely die. But rather, and then here comes the promise, here comes greater deception, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Remember that? You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Here is the trick, here is the twist. Being like God. This is one of the greatest desires of all of mankind is to be their own God, is it not? This is what, of course, befell Satan himself, to ascend on high, to be self-sufficient, to have complete and utter autonomy. That was the deception, to know the difference between good and evil, or to know, rather, good and evil. But the only problem was, is the reason they would know good and evil is because they themselves would become evil, and they would sin, and in that moment become enemies of God, cruel, wicked, lovers of self, haters of God, as described in the word. And this desire to be God of their own life led to a rebellion, a rebellion. Whether they knew it or not in that moment, fully acknowledged it, what had happened against God was utter rebellion against God. The desire to know good and evil, the desire to be like God or to become God and to be an authority of their own life thinking that they know better was nothing short of rebellion. 
it should remind us of the fall of Satan himself. Think of Isaiah 14 describing that fall. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low, you who said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. Verse later, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Hold on, put those right next to each other. Genesis 3, what was so tempting? You will be like God. What was it that caused the fall of Satan? I will make myself like the most high. It's the same sin. The desire to be God, to ascend on high, to have self-autonomy, rule, and authority, to cast off the shackles in our mind of having anybody in control of our life except ourself, namely God. We can understand how God gave Satan no quarter in that moment. He had committed nothing short of cosmic treason. And of course, the punishment for treason is what? It's death. It's death. And in that moment, Satan was given spiritual, eternal death. Now, he is not fulfilling it yet. There, that day is coming. Well, he spent eternity in hell. But what should be terrifying for us is what Satan did to get his condemnation and his sentence is no different than what each and every single one of us has done and what Adam and Eve did. They committed the same sin which should make it all the more amazing that God was willing to redeem us and come for us and get us. We, along with Adam and Eve and poet William Henley, desire to be captain of our own fate and master of our own soul. Do we not? We rebel against God's law. We think we know better what will truly satisfy, and we do not believe God and his word that in its end is death. We need to help folks see this about sin even the smallest things in their life, to help them understand the true consequences of their sin, that it is a rebellion against God. First, to be reminded of that ourselves, but then to help them see and understand that. And of course, if we've done a good job of helping them see and understand that God is a creator and that we are creation, then that rebellion begins to make sense and how we have cast off his rule and authority in our life and gone our own way. And that the consequence of that of course, understandably then, is death. This rebellion leads to a corruption of all of men and all of the man. Of all of men and all of the man. The basic definition of corruption I love, I think it's very helpful, when something has changed from its original use and has become debased or morally depraved. Think of all of the amazing gifts in this world that God has given us that now we look in the world and you see news stories every day of the corruption of it. Relationships, work, marriage, children. You could probably sit down with Nate and hear story after story after story of how corruption and sin has invaded all these areas of our communities and our own personal lives. Whether it be divorce or children with parents who have left them to the system, workaholism, fill in the blank, Sin has corrupted all of these good gifts that God gave us and have now been turned and twisted as we seek to author our own lives and be in control of our own lives. It's fully corrupted. Of course, Adam and Eve 
experienced this immediately. They hid from God. They ran, right, because they experienced shame because there was actually finally something to be ashamed of now that there was sin in their life, which then leads us to, of course, the separation that the corruption led to between Adam and Eve and between us and our God. This sin can be given no quarter and God can have nothing to do with our sin. Think of 2 Corinthians 6, 14. What fellowship does light have with darkness? If we've done a good job of explaining who God is and his character and nature, that he is holy, that he is perfect, right? That he is other than from anything that is sin, when we begin to talk to someone about the separation that our sin has between us and God, it becomes very easy to understand how God can have nothing to do with sin. Often we'll talk to folks and say, if, if, if God makes an exception for you, because we all want to be the exception, and lets you with sin into heaven, would heaven be heaven? Well, of course not. It would no longer be perfect, right? It would no longer be holy. It would no longer be blameless. It would no longer be free from all the corruption and things that come with sin, including sickness and death and depravity. No, God can give no quarter to sin, and therefore sin has to lead to a separation between us and God. You see it with Adam and Eve as he threw them out of the garden, which is a picture of God's presence with God's people. He walked in the coolness of the day with them in the garden, experienced perfect fellowship with them. And of course, that happens for us as well. There is an eternal chasm between us and our God. We have to help people understand. I often will use the Grand Canyon as a, as a physical illustration of the chasm that is between us and God because of our sin. There can be no return. There's no possible way that God can have any fellowship with someone if they are still in their sin, if they're still in their sin. We are called to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, and God himself cannot be unequally yoked with us. We are helpless sinners, but we are not unknowing sinners. I think that's important to cover. Adam and Eve didn't accidentally back their way into sin, right? They knew exactly what they were doing. Think of when Satan was tempting Adam and Eve, and he questioned the word of God. How did Eve respond? She knew exactly what God said. Matter of fact, she quoted it back to him. She said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, and she's literally about to quote him. She wasn't, she wasn't unaware of what God said, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. This is the case for all of us as well. Adam and Eve had special revelation. God had actually literally spoken his word to them, telling them exactly, explicitly what they were and were not to do. And we ourselves and all of creation have that as well. We have the general revelation of God throughout all of creation that reveals certain truths about who God is and his character and deity that makes us without excuse before God. In Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed against, from heaven against all ungodliness, against the unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, do what? Suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. We've all been given revelation. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen in that which has been made so that we are without excuse. Or Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
They they proclaim his handiwork. So creation has made it very clear that there's a creator, that he is powerful, he is divine, and we are his creation and are to be in subjection to him. But we all know we are not. And we break off and desire to be God of our own life, which leads us without excuse. So we too, all of us, as you're sharing with folks, right, we have this separation from God. There's not a single person on the face of the earth that is exempt to this. There's an eternal barrier and chasm between us and our God because of our sin, which then leads to an eternal condemnation. This is maybe one of the hardest things to be able to talk to with folks about, but we have to go there. You have to talk about hell. If a person does not know they are sick with cancer, they will never seek a physician. If they do not know they are dying, they will never seek salvation. Matter of fact, who is the person who talked about sin the most in scripture? Do you guys know? Which prophet? It's one particular prophet who actually spoke about hell, rather, excuse me, not sin, hell, more than any other. It was Christ. Wasn't Isaiah, wasn't Ezekiel, Abraham, Moses? It was was Christ himself. Why is that? He knows what's coming. If you have somebody that you love and you see what's headed for them, parents who love their children and they see the path that they're headed down, they see even if there's something terribly destructive headed down their way, They will not stop nagging their kids until they get their attention. They will ground them. They will send them to their room. They will send them off to academies. They will do whatever it takes to keep their kids from killing themselves. Why did Christ talk about hell more than anybody else? Because he loves his people. He has to warn them. He knows what's coming. Some men feel comfortable laying within the realm of chapel bells. I would rather run a rescue shop three yards from the gates of hell. There's an eternal condemnation that is headed for all who do not know Christ. And all of us sit here today, for those of us who know Christ, hopefully all, because someone opened their mouths and they warned us. They told us what was coming. Had the hard conversation and were willing to look us in the eye and tell us the hard truth and the consequences of our sin. And that is what our Savior did for us, and that is what we must do for others. We have to be willing to go there, even though I know it is so difficult. It's the most loving thing you could do. As a good parent, you have to tell your children when they are putting their life in danger, right? It's the same thing we have to do with our lost friends. We have to be willing to tell them the hard truth, that there is an eternal condemnation, that there is literally hell to pay for their sin. God did exactly what he said he was going to do in the garden. He condemned them the moment they sinned. From dust you came to dust you shall return as he gave them their condemnation. And thank God, though, that the story didn't end there, right? Have you ever thought about that? The story could end there, could have ended there. God would have been totally just to stop right there, hard stop. Genesis 3, that's it. From dust you came, to dust you shall return. I promised you, the moment you eat of it, you will die, and now you will die. And all of creation could have been that, just one trajectory, life, sin, death, hell. And God would have been totally just to do that. 
Praise God that that was not the case because he is a merciful and loving God in addition to his justice, a gracious God, a sacrificial God. It's not amazing or condemnable to God that he does not save all. It's amazing that he saves any at all. Is it not? Praise God. He could have wiped the dish with all of us and sent us all to an eternity separated from his love, his kindness, his mercy, his beauty, his grace, his wisdom. And it's good for us to ponder this from time to time, to think about that. And even let your friends think about that and wrestle with that of what is coming. Listen to the descriptions of hell from Christ himself and in the New Testament from many. It's a place of unquenchable fire, of weeping, of wailing, of gnashing of teeth, of darkness, flames and burning, of torments and everlasting punishment. Allowing someone to wrestle with this may be the most healthy, loving thing you've ever done for somebody. I don't leave them there, but allow them to wrestle with that and then ask them, what are you going to do? How then will we be saved? With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. His standard is absolute, complete perfection. Matthew 5, 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So how are you going to be perfect? And then let them answer. It'll be hard. There will be no good answer unless, of course, they know and understand the gospel and have trusted in Christ, hopefully. There will be a cavalcade of answers that they will give. I guess I'm just going to have to try to stop sinning. I'm going to go to church, whatever it may be. And there will be your opportunity right there where they'll be thirsty and hungry for the gospel. And they'll be ready to hear the truth, hopefully, Lord willing. And that is what leads us to the gospel. By giving the worst news possible, it leads you to being able to share the best news possible, right? And what is the gospel? Put simply, it is God's response to our sin. He could have let it end there, but he didn't. And he got busy. And he did even more than condemnation. He got about the business of redemption. And this is God's response. God did do exactly what he promised he was going to do in the moment that Adam and Eve sinned. He did condemn them in that moment. But in the same breath as breathing out the condemnation, he gave a promise. Right? That you will bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. And there was a promise given to Adam and Eve in that moment that there was hope to come and that there would be redemption. In the making of a sacrifice for Adam and Eve, right? they made coverings for themselves, coverings that were not good enough, were not sufficient in the hiding and the covering of their shame. God himself began the process of helping them understand how he was going to redeem them, made better coverings for them. Talked about that last week, I believe. There was shedding of blood, animal coverings for them, for them to begin to understand what was later revealed in Hebrews, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There was a promised consequence and curse of sin, which was death. Therefore, someone had to die, and an animal was not going to be enough. No man had sinned, therefore man must die. Adam was the representative image bearer of God over all of mankind, therefore all of men now sin because of his sin, but there was a better Adam to come in Christ who could then represent all of his children, right, and therefore die for all of his children as well. But that man had to be perfect. Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. We need a perfect sacrifice. So if we've done a good job of setting up the holiness of God and the holy standards of God and therefore helping people understand the consequences of falling short of those holy standards, and God is not wrong to have those holy standards. Heaven is not heaven without holiness and perfection, right? But now we see our need of Christ that we could never clean up our life enough to be able to be right with God. No, we have to have a substitutionary sacrifice. We have to have perfection in our place. And we'll never be that if we're being honest with ourselves. And that is where we see our need of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes it in one of the simplest, shortest, clear ways in all of scripture. There are many great places you could turn to help people see nice, clear pictures of the gospel. I just love this one. You imagine this clicker as being sin. Over here is us in this hand. You could just walk them through the verse. God made him, over here, no sin. So this is Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? Through faith and trust in Christ, right? He takes our sin, we get his righteousness, and then we can become the righteousness of God. It was for this exact purpose that Christ came love this passage. Jesus, while teaching upon his own impending crucifixion, said, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this purpose I came to this hour. For this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice from heaven said, I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. Christ came for this purpose, a lamb to the slaughter. That is why he came. He came to be the perfect sinless man to die for us, a scapegoat for all his people, the son of man come to die so that he, our condemnation can become his condemnation, our guilt, his guilt, our shame, his shame, our filth, his filth, our separation, his separation, our corruption, his. But he was not touched by it because he was perfect. And as we should have been separated, Christ on the cross was separated as he cried, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing that separation on the cross right there until he breathed his last, our death, his death. And then he said, it is finished. Praise God. And as God said, he did. I have glorified my name, and he glorified it again in that moment, and at his resurrection. Perhaps the darkest day on the face of earth, but God's glory never shined brighter than at Golgotha and at the resurrection. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, laid down his life. This is what we must help folks see, brothers and sisters. God made him who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And last just leads to that appropriate response. In him, in him, in two words, lies such a great mystery. What does it mean to be in him, in Christ? How do we get it? If God is offering a perfect right relationship with himself, how are we to have this right relationship with God. And of course, that is faith and trust in Christ. 
Romans 10, 9 and 10 explains this pretty wonderfully. Right? For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. With the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's been weeks on explaining what faith and trust in Christ is. And unfortunately, we don't have that kind of time uh, for this class and definitely not for this morning. I've heard it said once that faith is the hand by which we receive the free gift of God. I don't have my wallet with me. If you imagine, though, that this cell phone were a credit card, Apple Pay on some people's phones, so I guess that's a fair enough illustration. If you imagine that the cell phone is a credit card, if we have an eternal debt that needs to be paid to God, right, because of our sin, eternal condemnation, and God is offering you eternal righteousness, he says, here it is, eternal righteousness, right? Faith is the hand of which we receive that free gift. And we need to be careful. All illustrations break down at some point. We are not doing anything, right? It's not that God offers his hand down to the pit and then we grab his hand and that's how we're pulled out, right? No, we are totally dead. We are totally condemned. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. It is a completely monogistic event, the salvation of man. It is all of God and none of man. Rather, I would say that faith is the first thing that the regenerated person does because it's actually glorifying to God. God acts first, we act next. But faith is the hand by which we received the free gift of God. It is that trust in Christ that what he did fully satisfied the wrath of God. And how can we be confident that what he did fully satisfied the wrath of God? His resurrection. His resurrection. If Christ does not resurrect, we above all people are to be most pitied, are we not? His resurrection is the evidence that God accepted his sacrifice and he conquered sin and death. You must go there with folks. The resurrection is what truly gives hope that any of this is hopeful whatsoever. And so we trust in the sacrifice of Christ. We must trust in his righteousness and our justification before God because it's his righteousness, not our righteousness when God looks at us. We trust in his death that it satisfied the wrath of God and we trust that his resurrection is evidence of our future acceptance before God because God accepted his sacrifice and not ours. If we were to stand before God and try to give an account for our sin, it would take an eternity to do it, which is why hell is forever because we would never be able to exhaust and satisfy the wrath of God against an eternally holy, righteous, just God. So we must trust in Christ. That is the only hope to fully satisfy God. But that leaves us with how would someone ever trust in this? How would someone ever get to the point of trusting in Christ to understand who God is, who man is, who we are, what is sin, how did God respond to sin in the gospel, and then how are we to respond to God in the gospel? Well, they have to hear it. How then when they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. And the answer is, folks, they can't and they won't. No one will respond if they don't know what to respond to. They must hear the gospel. 
and they must hear it from us. Think of the sovereignty of God and the people that God has placed in your life, whether it be coworkers, family members, friends, whoever it might be in your spheres of influence in your life. God sovereignly put those people in your life. How will they call? How will they hear? How will they respond to this in faith and trust and repentance? They can't and they won't unless someone has beautiful feet. Let's pray that God would help FBC have more and more beautiful feet. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you have made it explicitly clear to us what then shall we do? Lord, like Moses told Israel that, God, you are not far off from us. You are not in a distant land. You have not made yourself unknown or unknowable, but God, in your grace, in your mercy, in your goodness of who you are, you desire, you have self-disclosed yourself to us. First and foremost, in your word to us, perfectly in the person and work of Christ, who is the exact character, embodiment, imprint of your nature, God. And Lord, we have disclosed to us who you are. And in so doing, you have disclosed to us who we are and how we have failed to live perfectly into the image of God and that that has defamed, dishonored you. And that that corruption and impending separation, God, has created a chasm between us that we could never cross. And so, God, you sent your son to bridge the gap to be the perfect man that we could never be and then to die the death that we deserve to die so that through faith and trust in him, we too might become sons and daughters of God, following in Christ who is the first fruits of many. Oh Lord, we are so thankful for that truth. We are so thankful for the beautiful theology that we get to hear every Sunday from the pulpit here at Faith Bible and through the weeks in the small groups that we are a part of or whatever opportunities we have. And Lord, we pray that that beautiful theology will lead us to having increasingly beautiful feet. That as we touch the lives of those that are around us, that God, you have sovereignly placed in our lives, coworkers, friends, families, whoever they might be, that God, we would see those as divine appointments. And we would see the opportunities that are in front of us that God, you desire for your glory to go there too. Whether it's your glory and them knowing more and rejecting and you being glorified even more in their condemnation, as mysterious as that is, or God, you doing the wonderful work of redemption in their lives too. You get the glory either way. We pray that God, he would help us to be obedient in this way. That God, as we are going about our lives Monday through Saturday, not just Sunday, that God, we would be seeking and desiring God to make you known to the nations. God, and having beautiful feet. We love you, Father. We praise you. And we pray these things in Christ's name.